welcome to Hello City, a lighthearted educational podcast about the built environment. I'm your host, Lisa Dunaway, AICP Lead AP. This is an edition of Hello City Help, where I answer questions from listeners. And today is actually not solely about professions in the built environment. Hopefully, what I'm about to talk about would be helpful to a variety of people. And as usual, the podcast is more geared towards young people who are new to the profession or maybe going into their second job. Although I do have one example from an older person um, in their profession that you may find helpful. So the topic for this week is negotiating salaries when you are about to start a new job or thinking about accepting a job offer. So this is likely going to be applicable to a variety of professions, but I received this question from someone I know and thought it would make a good podcast episode because there are certain times a year when people are entering the job market sort of in mass like the early fall when people who have been in school over the summer are graduating. People who have graduated in December are typically looking to start jobs in January, so it's quite a few people then. And then obviously, most people graduate in May and are looking for jobs that start in late May or early June. So it is the time of year now where people who graduated in the late summer may be starting to look for a job. So I do hope that this is helpful to more than one person out there. My first piece of advice is to take the offer that you were given, the monetary offer, and figure out how much it's actually worth. So let's say that just for ease of comparison and thought, (laughs) minimal doing of math in the head, Um, Your first job offer is $45,000 a year. There are certain expenses that you are going to need to automatically deduct from that salary. Most notably, if you're in the United States, your health insurance. And that could end up being a significant chunk, unfortunately, of your monthly income. So if that automatically makes your salary more like 40,000 or 42,000 a year, then maybe that job offer, that salary offer isn't so great to you. So for example, at my previous job, I had to pay like $250 a month for my health insurance, which was bad in my opinion, but my deductible was pretty low. And there were quite a few years that I met that deductible sort of in the middle of the year. So I saved some bigger expenses like annual exams for the end of the year, knowing that I had met my deductible and those expenses wouldn't be quite so bad. Now that I am a business owner and I work for myself, I'm on my husband's health insurance. And it was only $50 a month to add me on to his, which is really inexpensive. But our deductible is $6,000 a year, which unless something horrible happens, knock on wood, uh, we are never going to meet that. So really, it's not a great amount for health insurance just because we will end up paying so much of our own expenses knowing that we will never reach that deductible. 
and I have a chronic health condition, which now means I actually spend more on health care than I do on what I pay for food for myself every month. It's more than what I spend on my car payment. It's more than my half of our mortgage. And it's a sad state to be in, in the United States of America, but that's where we are. So if this were a situation where I was spending that amount working for someone else, that would be a huge reduction in my salary. You know, I'm working for myself, so it's kind of par for the course, and I'm lucky that I can even get health insurance through my husband, so I don't want to sound ungrateful, but it does make a big difference in what your actual pay is. The other thing that you're going to want to find out from them is how much they contribute to your retirement. So whatever 401k situation they may or may not have and what the match is. And a lot of people will tell you that you want to max out the match. So if they are going to contribute 3% of your salary to your 401k every year, you also want to contribute 3%. And that would be probably more than most people do, but I would argue that that is not enough. You want to max out the federal limit for how much you can contribute per year. And I think I may have said this before, but I was okay about saving for retirement. I've been saving for retirement since I was 20, but I did not put back nearly as much as I could. I never maxed out the federal limit until I was maybe 35 and finally just realized that I didn't need to spend money on stupid shit anymore, um, sadly. And I think I've said this before too, if minimalism had been a thing, like if the internet had even been a big thing when I had graduated and I was informed even a little bit compared to what I was um, in 2003, a little bit more informed about financial matters, I would have absolutely been on the minimalism train, would have had a capsule wardrobe. I never did spend a lot of money on a car, um, which is good, but I did spend plenty of money on stupid stuff that I didn't need to, and I don't know who I was trying to impress. And I certainly had no business buying a condo at age 26, but I felt like all this societal pressure to own property, which was just stupid and the biggest financial mistake of my life. So please max out what you put into retirement the day that you start your job. It is the number one biggest thing that I think Gen Xers can tell millennials or Gen Z people in terms of our biggest life mistakes. Baby boomers had such a different situation when they were in the workforce, a lot of them were pensioners. They weren't treated so terribly. They didn't live through numerous recessions in their short lifespan like a Gen Xer has. So baby boomers generally are, are far more well set for retirement than Gen Xers will be. And I have many friends who are around the age of 40 like myself and don't have any put back for retirement. So in order to 
have enough to just exist on when they reach 65 or something, they would have to put back more than they're actually allowed to. Um, there is a limit of what you can put into retirement every year from the federal government. And if you've not saved any by the time you're 40, you actually can't put enough in. You have to get very creative with the things that you do. And I'm certainly not the person to, to be the, I'm not the go-to for that. You should really talk to a financial planner, but it is a little terrifying. Uh, people that I consider very intelligent uh, don't have any retirement saved or they've only ever let their employer make contributions and didn't do any themselves. And I understand that it's hard, especially if you have student loan debt and it's not fair and it sucks that we're in this situation in uh, the richest country in the world, but there is something to be said for unnecessary materialism and you can make it happen. Find out what the most you're allowed to put back is and then put that back and let your employer max out what they are willing to put back. But that also means that you're gonna deduct that amount from the salary that they're offering you and just act like that doesn't exist. Have it automatically withdrawn every pay period from your check before you can touch it and then treat the remainder of your salary minus your health insurance costs and see if you can live on that. So you really do have to set a budget for yourself and I know it sucks and a lot of people don't do it but that's why a lot of people are in financial trouble. It's true and it sucks. <laughs> but it's one of the most important things that you can do and it's gonna be a little difficult and you may make mistakes, especially if you're moving to a new place and you're sort of adjusting to what the cost of living in that place is like. Like, that's all right, you're allowed to make mistakes. You're, you're young, if you're my target audience for this particular episode, you have time to correct those mistakes. So don't beat yourself up if you don't get some things right because by the time you're my age, you will have long since been able to make up for it. But don't make the mistake of waking up and being 40 years old and realizing that your house is full of stupid shit that you don't need and a car that you really can't afford and you have nothing saved for retirement. Another minor thing is Will your company expect you to travel? And if so, will they give you a car for that? Or is there a company car that you can borrow? If they're expecting you to drive yourself around, they absolutely should pay you mileage. And there's a, a federal amount per mile that they should pay you. But that is wear and tear on your car. And if it's a sort of job where you're gonna have to travel a lot for meetings or doing field work or something, that is something that you should treat as a deduction from your salary. Wear and tear on a car is a real thing. Even if you have a nice car, if you're having to put a lot of miles on it, you should count that for something. Going back to the personal budget, you really want to look into the cost of living in the place you're going to be. Even if it's your hometown, and you're familiar generally you know with what you're gonna spend on gas or groceries or whatever there's a big difference between living under your parents roof 
and sort of knowing what things cost and being on your own and finding out what things cost. You can pull your relatives and your friends who already live out on their own and sort of figure out what utilities run. If you're moving to a place that's completely new to you, that is even more important for you to find out. And luckily the internet can tell you things like that. We didn't have that when I graduated from undergrad. And the biggest thing that got me in trouble was not rent, it was car insurance. Because I was from Ohio and my family owned a car dealership. So my car insurance was only like $25 a month because I was under our business's policy. I was just an add-on. And when I moved to my first job out of undergrad, I moved to Patterson, New Jersey. And car insurance in New Jersey is unbelievable. And no one told me because, I don't know, maybe the people in HR and the company that I was going to work for, it didn't occur to them that car insurance was cheaper in other places. I don't know. But I plated my car in New Jersey because, by God, I was going to demonstrate my independence from my family and the fact that I had left Ohio and I was doing shit on my own. And my car insurance was over $250 a month, even though I had an awesome driving record. My car insurance had went up 10 times and I did not have the money to pay for that. So I ended up having to work all kinds of overtime, which negated moving across the river from Manhattan because I could, I never had time to go over there and do anything. I had to work evenings. I had to work weekends. I worked Thanksgiving day once and I'm not joking. I did. After a couple years, I was like, well, screw this, you know, and I moved back <laughs> to the Midwest because uh, unfortunately, I just couldn't afford to do any of the things that were the reason why I wanted to move to the East Coast as a single person on a design salary. And also being a woman, um, I found out that I was paid $6,000 less a year than people who were male that had my exact same job at the exact same time. And that kind of sucked too. So in terms of your personal budget, do some research and find out what sort of unexpected expenses you may have. We have a friend who's considering moving to Florida. Renter's insurance might be a far different thing down there. I don't know. I could imagine that there has to be some sort of hurricane thing built into insurance down there. I would imagine that it costs more. I know that the cost of living is more in Florida than it is here in Indiana. So what might be on the surface a very good salary offer from a potential employer in a different state may not actually be, you know, if you're going to California or New York, certainly what sounds like a good salary in Indiana or Ohio or Kentucky is very quickly going to become a terrible salary in a state that's more expensive. So you got to hit the pause button and do a little research there. Also, something to consider is your commute. My very first job in New Jersey, again, the car insurance was expensive. My rent wasn't too bad. It was doable. It was tolerable. But my first job, I was actually, it was kind of cool. My apartment building was right next to an on-ramp for a highway. And my place of work was at the end of the next off-ramp. 
So when I commuted, I'm doing quotey fingers, when I commuted <laughs> to work, I went up an on-ramp and immediately back down an off-ramp. I didn't even have to merge into traffic. I was at work in under five minutes, which is just unheard of in New Jersey. And so I didn't have to spend hardly any on gas, which was great because again, my car insurance was so expensive. But my second job in New Jersey, I worked at a firm in East Orange, which really wasn't that far away in terms of mileage from Patterson, but I had to use the parkway to get there. So not only did I then have to buy an easy pass and get charged for all the tolls, I had to sit in traffic an absolute shit ton. For someone who had never had to commute more than 10 minutes to work, this was just the biggest blow to my happiness that I had ever experienced in my life to that point. And my boss was cool in some ways. If you got there at like 9, 30, 10 o'clock because of traffic, he didn't care as long as you still put your eight hours in. But oh my gosh, I would sit on the on the parkway or the turnpike I can't even remember now for so long I listened to Howard Stern to try to keep my sanity a good day was like an hour commute for just a few miles most of the time it was more like an hour and 15 an hour and a half of going almost nowhere so I ended up spending two, three hours a day commuting just a few miles down the, the road. But more importantly, I spent a ton of money on gas because my car was just sitting there inching along in traffic going nowhere. And it didn't matter what time of day I left. I could leave at 6. I could leave at 8.30. I got to the point where I was even leaving at like 9.30. And it was, it was marginally better, you know, maybe three minutes better. It was just the way of the world in that area. Not only then was my car insurance expensive, but my gas budget was exponentially increased. And I didn't really last that long at that second job. The, the whole job was very strange. And it was my fault, I suppose, for not accounting for the differences and expenses that going to this other city meant, you know, but that's what it was. So I think I worked there 90 days to the day and was like, you know what, I've made a mistake. I need to go back home. I can't afford to live here as a single person. I'll never be able to afford a house or have savings or anything. So I'm a, I'm a back to the Midwest after that. Those are things that need to be accounted for in your personal budget. And then once you know what you have to live on in comparison to what you can live on, you also should compare that salary to others in your area. And there are plenty of tools online to do that if you Google salary comparison. So find out like what is actually a decent offer in your area. Overestimate your abilities, but don't don't sell yourself short either. It seems like people are one extreme to the other. People are either way too humble or think way too highly of themselves. I guess the most common pitfall that I've seen is people with a master's degree thinking that 
they're going to get thousands and thousands of dollars more because they have a master's degree. And unfortunately, that's simply not true. It may be in some professions and with some master's degrees, but in the design professions, if you have a master's degree, you may get two or three thousand more for that. It also depends on whether or not your degree was accredited. But it's kind of amazing to me how few employers even know about that or care about that. There were people who were my coworkers at my first job who had went to a four-year program that was unaccredited that were paid more than me um, when I went to a five-year professional program and had two internships under my belt. And it was an accredited school. But I was a woman, so again, they paid me $6,000 less, so super suck. And those are all things that you're, you're going to want to consider. This is less common, but you can also negotiate vacation versus salary. Let's say that the salary offer you've received is decent. I would never not negotiate at all. People are definitely lowballing you even if the offer sounds nice because they expect you to negotiate. Even if you're just going to ask for like $2,500 more or something like that, y'all can meet in the middle. But don't just take the first offer if it sounds good. If the money sounds fine but you're somebody who really likes to travel, maybe say, hey, you know, the, the salary's cool, but I would like another week's vacation or something like that. Especially if it's your second job, you have a little bit more room to demand something like more vacation versus salary. And certainly later on in your career, there are a lot of companies who will want to give you their starting package because you're new to them, but you're not new to your profession. For example, if I were to go work for somebody else right now, being about to turn 40 years old, having been in the profession since 2003, I would expect to get three or four weeks vacation from somebody even if I was new to their company because that's the point in my career that I'm at. My mom, for example, had worked for a bank for like 25, 30 years and then got poached by another bank, which was kind of cool. And they gave her a lot better salary, but they offered her two weeks vacation like she was a brand new, fresh face. And she was like, um, no, you know, I've been at my current job for so long. I have six weeks vacation and I'd rather just stay where I am because the time off is more important to me than the salary. And they were like, you're right. We really want you to come work here, so fine. And they ended up giving her, I think, seven weeks. That is something that is a little more negotiable. You can't really negotiate things like 401k percentages or how much your company is going to pay towards your health insurance versus what you pay. It may be something that you can do when you, you're quite a bit older and have more experience, but if it's your first couple jobs out of school, the salary is the most easily negotiated thing. Vacation time or PTO, personal time off, is probably the, a distant second in terms of what you can negotiate. But I know for a lot of millennials, money is not the most important thing, but you know, having time to yourself, being able to travel is much more important to you. Also consider 
whether you're going to get paid overtime or not. In the design professions, a lot of times when you are working for a bigger firm, particularly like a civil engineering firm, you will often get paid straight time for your overtime. Even though you have a salary, they will actually give you, you know, whatever that is, $17 an hour, $18 an hour in straight time for your overtime. I've not really heard of people getting time and a half for overtime, but I'm sure it exists somewhere. So consider that, you know, you want to ask them how much overtime is typical where they work. If you're going to go work for a municipality, you're probably not going to get overtime, but they're probably not going to expect you to work more than 40 hours. Or maybe they'll give you flex time. Like if you have to do a lot of night meetings or something, maybe they let you come in at 10. Or maybe they let you take a half day on Friday. Those are all things that you want to ask about because I know, especially to younger people, that your time is very valuable to you. And it should be. You are far more enlightened than some Gen Xers and certainly more baby boomers in terms of valuing your time. So just make sure that you're accounting for that. The other thing that you can do if you're not very happy with the offer and they're not super willing to negotiate with you, you can ask for something like a 90-day review. I did this one time and it worked out. I was like, you know what, I think you, this is a little lower than I expected, but let's make a deal that in 90 days I will get a review and we'll set some goals for me to make and if I make those goals then I want this much of a pay increase and they were like cool and it, it, it worked out the other thing that you could do is ask when does the next review come up so some companies no matter what time of year you start they will do everybody's review in July for example they may not have it rolling based on when you started for them. It may just be a set time for everybody. So if you're gonna have to wait quite a while for that review, you may wanna say like, hey, how much is the standard raise for meritorious work in this company? You know, if you're gonna have to wait almost a year anyway, and then it turns out that you're only gonna get like a one and a half or 2% raise, that's what they do sort of standard, that's not really all that great. That's just sort of keeping up with the cost of living. But let's say you're gonna have to wait a year or almost a year for your review, but they typically give a three or 4% raise, then, you know, that's not, that's not so bad. Um, typically, the biggest raises that you'll get are when you jump to a completely new job. Unfortunately, it's kind of rare that you get a nice big hefty pay increase when you're moving up in the same company year after year, especially if you're a woman or a minority. Once in a while, if you jump to like a managerial position, you'll get somewhat of a nice chunk, but being able to jump ship um, and negotiate um, a huge percentage is more typical. One time I changed jobs and got $24,000 more when I went to my new job. And that just proved to me how underpaid I had been in my previous job. 
And so that's something, you know, to consider as well. If you're not planning to stay at a place very long, if you're just sort of testing it out, you have a feeling it's not going to go great, but you, you know, you have things to learn. You might be like, all right, I can put up with this for a little bit because in a couple of years, I'm going to move on anyway, or maybe things end up being great in that couple years and then you can say you know what y'all have underpaid me a tad so I want a good raise this time and if it doesn't work out then you really can leave or if they value you and you've done a good job then hopefully they will rise to the occasion you also can ask for profit sharing information if you are going into the private sector so I'm not just talking like Christmas bonus that is a thing that you are more than um, able to ask about. What is a typical Christmas bonus for an entry-level person or whatever level that you're at, but also profit sharing if that's a thing. Sometimes small firms don't have huge salaries, but they're very generous with their profit sharing. So if everybody does well, you could end up making like 10% on top of your salary or something like that, which could be amazing. Or you could be able to get another week's vacation. Small firms are kind of nice about giving more weeks off than bigger firms. I've worked for, gosh, three or four different small firms where they just gave you the week between Christmas and New Year's off. They were like, nobody's doing anything anyway, which is true. And a lot of people take vacation at that point anyway. So the salary wasn't very high, but that third week of vacation made a big difference to me. I thought it was awesome and I still would. So that's another thing to consider. Also things like, will they pay for your continuing education? Will they pay for you to go to conferences, your registration fees? your licensure, all of those things add up really quickly, especially if you're going to be licensed in more than one thing. So in my case, I really can't afford to be a registered landscape architect and I really wouldn't sign drawings anyway. I would still probably pay someone to check my work and sign my drawings for me, but I am a certified planner and those expenses do add up. If I was going to try to be an RLA or PLA and an AICP, that would be a lot of money. And if I worked for somebody else, that would be cool because that person, I could probably negotiate that expense to be covered as part of my job. But working for myself, I'm not at the point where it's worth it to me to be both. It's only worth it to me to be an AICP. Related to that is whether they will pay for you to go to school. So I did have one job where they paid for me to take a couple classes towards finishing my master's. I was a little more than halfway through it when I started the job and I was finishing it remotely. I was in Indiana and it was Vermont and I was transferring credits back and all this stuff. But they paid for those classes because it was of direct benefit to my job. And I did learn a lot of stuff that I was using every day in the job. So I didn't feel shady about taking their money whatsoever. But if you're the sort of person who knows that you want to continue your education and be a lifelong learner, that could be a very significant chunk of money. Maybe they'll pay a percentage of your tuition or maybe they'll pay for all of it. Who knows? If that adds up to several thousand dollars a year, that 
that's like having a bigger salary. So that might make it worth you taking a little bit less than perhaps you expected in terms of salary. So I guess the moral of the story here is to do a lot of research. Thank goodness for the internet and all of the information it can provide. Your professional planning association or landscape architecture association, blah, blah, blah. Those sorts of places often do salary surveys. I know the APA does. So you can look up information and find out what is a typical starting salary in your area or the place that you want to move. And you should be able to negotiate around that general price, especially if you know that your portfolio is pretty strong. Maybe you had an internship or two and had a lot of responsibilities. Maybe you have a master's degree. There are a variety of things that could allow you to negotiate on top of whatever that salary range is for your job in your area. No matter what, you got a lot to think about, and that's just part of being a grown-up. So make yourself some budgets, do some research, really, really pay attention to what cost of living is like, unexpected expenses that you may have like weird car insurance or having to spend a lot of money on a commute, whether or not your employer is going to contribute to your 401k right away. Is there a waiting period? There's all sorts of stuff like that that should be factored in. My biggest piece of advice to anyone listening who is looking for a new job is to not just take the salary offer at face value, but factor in all these different things that I've talked about, and there probably are more that I've not talked about that I've forgotten, but factor those things in to help you determine what the actual number is for your salary. Thanks to everyone who gave me feedback on the last episode. Uh, It was nice to know that people appreciated hearing about the do's and don'ts in the workplace. It was kind of nice to know that some people didn't take it personally and were actually like, you know what, I didn't realize that that was rude of me to be doing this or that. So thank you. I've now changed my behavior at work. That's cool. You know, that was sort of a lofty goal of mine. So I'm glad that it seems to have helped some people out. And if you have a question for a future episode, or if you would like to send in a story, or if you want to be interviewed, again, I can do it anonymously. That way you can really like tell the whole scoop. I think it makes it more interesting for the audience. So there's a number of ways you can get a hold of me. If you go to Twitter, I'm at HelloCityPod. I'm at HelloCityPodcast on Instagram. There is also hellocitypodcast.com, and you can contact me there through the contact form. You can also link through to the Patreon if you'd like to support the show. And then finally, I am at hellocitypodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to hit me up if there's anything you want to know, if you want some more advice, if you have a question, or you want to share a story. I appreciate you listening. I will talk to you in the next episode. And remember, make no small plans. Have a great day.